From Washington, this is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. This is Tony Prado. You're listening to the HPS Macrocast. Uh, I'm coming to you from New York City. My uh, my colleague, uh, Matt McDonald from HPS, is in the studio in, uh, in Washington, D.C., as is John Fagan from Markets Policy Partners, and our good friend, Mark Sobel, my former colleague, uh, from Treasury Department, John's former colleague from uh, Treasury D- uh, Department. Now, uh, Mark is the uh, the U.S. Chairman for uh, OMFIF. Mark, you could what, t- tell me OMFIF. I always I can't always forget. I forget all my acronyms. OMFIF, the official uh, monetary financial institutions forum. There we go. Thank you. And it's a Jobs Day Friday, and uh, coming off of a uh, a really wild week in uh, in the markets. We just got the jobs report. Uh, Matt will run us through the numbers uh, here, but you know, a wild open to the market. Uh, the ten year note uh, is down uh, around 0.7 uh, percent, which is, seems otherworldly for, for if you've followed uh, you know the ten year for any length of time. And um, um, and the market, uh, you know, the Dow's down about uh, you know 750 points. Uh, all the markets across the board down around uh, you know three percent fall, uh, which would put this into a negative week. But we do have you know, uh, and we have coronavirus and elections uh, going on. And later in the show, we're going to talk about a really interesting uh, uh, paper that uh, that Mark wrote uh, about the you know Treasury Department's uh, work on trying to get the Chinese to uh, to reform their uh, their currency policy and it's a it's a terrific paper and we'll talk about it more later in the uh, later in the podcast but first let's go to uh, the non-farm payroll numbers. Matt, what do we got? So this is the best jobs report that nobody will care about <laughs> is the top line number was uh, jobs increased by 273,000 in February. This is over. The consensus was around 175, so this is a, it's a good number and a nice beat. Um, the unemployment rate ticked down from 3.6 to 3.5, though it, um, it's been, I think it's been alternating between 3.5 and 3.6 for about six months now. So, you know, it's down again, but the were around the same level. I think if you start going out to the hundredths or rounding is that it's probably right around the border on those pieces. Uh, likewise, um, average hourly earnings continue to grow. It's we've got the, it's been three percent increase over the trailing year. And then and then the other thing, even beyond kind of the a really good two seventy three number is that uh, revisions up were up in uh, December and January by a collective 85,000. So um, those numbers uh, went up too. The, if you look at um, if you look at the January numbers, actually it was revised up 48,000 to 225 or from 225 to 273. So after revisions, we actually had 270, 273,000 jobs added in both January and February, which is on the jobs front at least a great start to the year, despite all of the other uh, chaos swirling around us. Yeah, by, by any other, uh, by any measure, and uh, and if we didn't have, you know, coronavirus concerns and and what we're seeing with which, what may be a sudden stop, this is a blowout jobs report, right? I mean, it's uh, I mean, there's there's there isn't a trub- single troubling number in this. So that, you know, workforce participation is great, wages yeah. are great, 
the revisions are great. Uh, so, you know, I guess if you're going to go into a coronavirus uh, economic shock, yeah, you want to go from a position of strength, right? right? Even if the if the if the Fed doesn't have a lot of room to operate, at least the job market does. <laughs> uh, John, what do you think about the what do you think about the numbers? It is as as Matt said. This is taken by the markets as uh, something in the in the rearview mirror and rapidly disappearing into the into the background here, as market participants peer ahead at what they expect to be a an increasingly acute uh, headwind from the from the outbreak. So we really didn't expect any sort of major market reaction, and that and that is proven out by the price uh, price action resulting, which was barely a flutter in uh, 10-year Treasury yields and two-year Treasury yields, which, as you pointed out earlier, Tony, are extremely depressed this morning and trading uh, consistent with an exceedingly grim economic outlook. They're, and, now, they're now below below 0.7 now. I just saw a 0.692 um, flash on the screen, which is yeah crazy. It, it really is. And it is a that that fact alone, the where the ten year is trading right now, is very troubling for equity markets. It is uh, a warning and a loud warning signal, uh, and uh, and this is you know this is coming as you know we've seen obviously this uh, this week has this week has crystallized a lot of the concerns uh, that we're building over the past month uh, as to the uh, you know the global uh, nature of this outbreak. So, uh, but. As, as we discussed, it's not showing up right at the moment in U.S. economic data. So investors and, and analysts are going to be pouring through some of their more high-frequency data and some of, the, uh, some of the early indications of this month to try to see where, you know, how, how bad this might be, uh, might be impacting us uh, at the moment and, and in the future. Could you, hey, hey, John and Mark, could you guys, could we just take a minute on, just on the 10-year? Because, I don't, again, I'm not sure that most people really understand just how wild this is, right? So what exactly is, what exactly is going on there? So we know that the, you know, uh, so just if, if people aren't familiar, you know, price and yield uh, go in opposite directions. So, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see the price of the 10-year in front of me, which I know I can dig up. But, you know, price is being bid up. And the yield is uh, is lowering. Generally, that means that people are flooding into, uh, you know, buying uh, ten years uh, as a as a you know as a safe asset. What is it? Is that what's happening here? And what is it? Explain what it means for uh, for the outlook. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thanks, Tony. the 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 ten year yield when when analysts and traders look at the ten year yield. That is one part of the Treasury yield curve. Uh, when they, they look at the two-year, for instance, the two-year is much more driven, the two-year yield is much more driven by Fed policy expectations. And uh, the 10-year, and, and we see now the two-year is trading right now at 40 basis points. Uh, the Fed, uh, we'll talk a little bit about this uh, in, in, uh, later in the show, but the Fed engaged already in 50 basis points of emergency rate cuts on Tuesday of this week and bringing the uh, uh, bringing the policy rate into a range between 1.25 and 1%. The two-year yield is uh, reflecting expectations of m- you know, many more uh, cuts to come. And so trading at 40 basis points is, uh, is, is, is 
at the two-year is telling us much more about the expectations for Fed policy. The 10-year obviously incorporates uh, the two-year yield, but also on top of it, also baked into the 10-year yield are expectations for growth and inflation. And uh, and that is, you know, right now at 70 basis points or below 70 basis points. That's consistent with an exceptionally downbeat, grim, you know, recession-level economic outcome uh, down the road in the medium term. That's not, you know, not 10 years out. This is, you know, 10 year reflects sort of medium to longer term expectations. And as you say, layered on top of uh, layered on top of these uh, expectations of policy growth and inflation is the accelerant here is clearly a safe haven bid with investors running into the what they see as the safest uh, safest harbor in a in a gathering storm here and that is still a uh, you know the the treasury market um, and uh, and it's you know right now we're we're seeing that um, we're seeing that play out in a very you know historically rapid uh, decline in yields um, and uh, and it's and it's sending some real warning signals here. You know, before we uh, we, had, we had a little bit of discussion uh, before we before coming up before the podcast of uh, about why the you know why the dollar is actually uh, off its you know off its size. Ordinarily, what you would see in a you know in a uh, when there's a flight to safety event. Uh, the traditional thing you see is our U.S. Treasuries uh, bid up, the yield come down, dollar strengthening because people need to, you know, exchange their uh, foreign uh, their foreign currencies to buy dollars in order to buy U.S. dollar denominated assets like Treasuries, and so the dollars usually bid up. What's unusual, you know, is that uh, the dollar has actually is is you know is off its highs. Um, and you know, my guess on that was that it's you know really you know people holding dollar-denominated assets or reallocating uh, from risk assets like equities to um, to treasuries. So they're not they're not having to go out and buy dollars uh, in order to do that. They can you know they can do that all within within dollars. What do you what are your what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's right. The uh, you know as as you say, the typical formulation in a high stress market environment is equities sell off, treasuries rally, and the dollar gets uh, and the dollar appreciates. The problem that is and and that is in some respects good uh, because that shows uh, an investor belief and uh, faith in the in the in the dollar and dollar based assets. On the other hand, it tends to be pretty pro cyclical as the dollar spikes up. It can cause problems for companies uh, with currency mismatches, dollar debt. Uh, if they have their, uh, their, you know, they're typically making money in another currency. It tends to be very hard on uh, commodities markets. It tends to be very difficult for emerging markets and uh, very deflationary. So a surging dollar, while you know it shows faith in the United States and the greenback, it is a pro-cyclical dynamic. The fact that the dollar right now is uh, is depreciating off of you know what were multi sort of multi-year, multi-month highs into the middle of its range. It's not as though the dollar is falling off the table. It's falling back into a trading range uh, that had been established for uh, for a number of years. And that is a, in, in our view, it's a recalibration of expectations that the U.S. would be relatively more insulated from this outbreak than Europe and uh, Asia. 
and we one of the one of the pieces of evidence we think gives us uh, gives us faith in this conclusion is that earlier in the outbreak when we saw uh, Asia really be, you know China and Asia North Asian countries being the epicenter. The yen failed to have a its typical safe haven characteristic uh, appreciation. The yen fell as well, and uh, and now the yen is is making a comeback here. And we think that's a recalibration of the understanding that uh, that the U.S. would be an island, uh, an oasis of uh, of of uh, you know of health in this in this outbreak. And uh, we think that probably dollar weakness will peter out here, but. You know the understanding. That this is really a much more global and uniform across the world uh, impact. Can we can we talk about the impact uh, a little bit? I mean, I, I think it's uh, it seems like such a long time ago, but it was just uh, you know really three days ago that uh, Jay Powell came out with an emergency rate cut. You know, the fifty basis points uh, that was supposed to you know uh, it was, uh, shock shock the market. So the, the Fed is clearly seeing. Uh, you know, some, uh, you know, potential weakness that it's trying to uh, protect against. How, how, are, how do we feel about that? Um, you know, is what, do, you know, we were, we were the ones, I think a couple of weeks ago saying the market seems to be underestimating what the economic uh, impact is going to be. Um, they're, they're not underestimating it uh, anymore. Uh, but are they, are they, are they close to target or is this a panic? Well, the uh, so right now, as th- it's a very important distinction to make. There is there is price action uh, that is reflecting stress and uh, and and investor fears, and that is you know that is that is adverse and stressed price action. But what is even more important from the policymaker standpoint, and really from the financial market standpoint, is that structural. How much structural stress are we seeing? There's a distinction to be made there, and obviously. You know, with the kind of volatility that we've seen, and the and the expectations for increasingly acute economic and human fallout uh, from this outbreak, there are more fundamental and deep-seated problems that in, traders and analysts are now monitoring. And these are basically uh, credit stresses, dollar liquidity stresses, both in the funding markets here in the U.S. and overseas. Uh, uh, interbank funding right now. None of these are at you know super stressed levels, but they, they are def- they definitely bear watching. They're not necessarily going in the right direction here, uh, and so that is that is a, that's a key distinction. Uh, whether the downbeat price action remains orderly as of now, it it, it is remaining orderly. The f- the market reaction to the Fed on Tuesday looked you know on a superficial basis looked a little bit. You know, not not exactly a little suboptimal because equity sold off after the after Jay Powell's uh, press conference. I think that's a little unfair because uh, S&P 500 had rallied to 4.6 percent the day before. And so it had bounced pretty significantly. So that was it was it was going to be tough for the Fed to give the equity market a lift after that kind of preemptive rally on Monday. And you had a situation in which, you know, the the futures markets immediately moved the goalposts uh, on the Fed. And so uh, there was 
discussion about how much more the Fed is going to do. Well, the markets have made up their mind that they've got another 50 basis points coming at the March 18th meeting, another 50 basis points with a, you know, rising chance of uh, 75 basis points being cut. Uh, over the next year, the futures markets are reflecting almost uh, 100 basis points. That's uh, that's That would be four 25 basis point rate cuts. Uh, but it Right now, it's reflecting a much swifter start. So three full rate cuts are priced in by by April. And this is alongside expectations that uh, the Fed will be beefing up its liquidity operations, turning its current asset purchase program into something much more like a QE uh, or even you know explicitly firing up quantitative easing, which is large scale asset purchases out of you know with a longer duration in the Treasury market. If the uh, guests can pipe in. Um Please. <laughs> Always. Please. I mean, the, the, the market reaction uh, had a little buy the rumor, sell the fact um, quality to it. Um, and there's this whole clamor to do something from the market, a uh, sign of desperation. Uh, so the Fed cut. And the way I put it is that the market's got their fix. But it's worth underscoring that in many respects, what's uh, the coronavirus is a supply shock, right? If a uh, production line is closed down, cutting interest rates is not going to solve that problem. Uh, now, the Fed cuts can help support asset prices. Not clear how much good that's doing to this, but in principle, it can support asset prices. It can help deal with confidence issues. It can deal with some of the stress issues uh, you suggested. But uh, I still have a fundamental question about how, how much good are the Fed cuts going to do for the economy? And in my mind, the action really should be on the fiscal side. I think we need targeted measures to help small businesses keep their liquidity, um, maintain their liquidity in a period of uncertain demand and whatnot. Um, so I, I offer that comment. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and the from our perspective, the Fed's action on Tuesday was really about trying to, uh, you know, trying to keep markets from making an economic, you know, obviously a challenging economic situation worse. Markets have the ability to magnify uh, economic, you know, negative economic outcomes with pro-cyclical uh, price action. If the Fed had withheld rate cuts this week and had said, you know, but for its emergency rate cuts, we would have much more likely seen a full inversion of the two-year, 10-year yield curve, which screams recession. We would have seen the dollar potentially rise uh, and and break out to the upside. And so it's kind of a, you know, a do no harm, trying to keep markets from making things worse. And, uh, and I think that's, you know, the, uh, right now in the market, the, the market signals are, are that the Fed is, you know, on the right track. Um, and the other thing I would say is the Fed has established this as a pattern for a decade. And for the Fed now to say, you know, we're not going to do it. We're going to apply some real tough love to the markets. I, I, my own opinion would be that now is not the time for that. If you wanted to do that, maybe 2014 is <laughs> to establish that. Well, why don't we do this? I, I actually want to go deeper into that a little bit about what um, – you know, what the response ought to be and how we think about uh, what the outlook is. Um, and so why don't we take a break here and then uh, and then come back and, and, and dive into the, you know, the government response just 
uh, just a little bit and see where if we have uh, can make sense of where we think that's going. You're listening to the HPS Macrocast. On the first Friday of every month, HBS analyzes the latest jobs and labor market data in a digestible format. Sign up for our reports at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com or on Twitter at HPS Insight. We're back on the macrocast. Uh, Tony Prado in New York, Matt McDonald in Washington, D.C., along with uh, John Fagan and Mark Sobel. Uh, so, hey, guys, like, I mean, one of the things when you think about, the, you know, what happens is sort of, you know, activity, the economic activity, we're all economic actors ourselves. Have you canceled any trips? Are you spending, are you hoarding up on toilet paper and we're, hoard, we're hoarding up on, on board games. So board we, games we're in anticipation of school potentially being out is that our biggest threat we perceive in our house as bored children. So <laughs> We actually How much money had, can you spend on board It's games? interesting. I, I will say we had, um, I you know, whatever we spend, it will return in many fold in, <laughs> in distractions. We were, we have spring break coming up. We have, uh, and we were, we're going skiing in Vermont and we were already planning to drive. So we're, we're just same old plan. We're doing that. I do have friends who's, um, we had a friend who had a spring break trip planned to Japan and they canceled that. And so there's, I mean, that's Japan though. So, um, you know, I think people are, there's some changes. President has been saying, well, look, uh, the, you know, sort of the silver lining on this is that, well, I mean, you know, people are canceling their overseas trip, but uh, trips, but they're at least are spending, you know, traveling domestically. And the only, mm. you know, counterpoint to that is I think, you know, Southwest airlines CEO was on CNBC yesterday. And he said that 97% of his, Flights are domestic. I, I presume the others go to either maybe Mexico or Canada. Um, so 97% of his flights are Mexico or are domestic, and the impact looks a lot like 2008 to him. Yeah. Uh, so it was a real fall off even on domestic flights. So, so you know, but the, the, I mean, we should we is, should mention we should mention yeah. Tony that that HPS has their cases that have been announced in Montgomery County here, right next to DC, and. HPS has closed our office. I mean that we've done that. Yeah. Now, now the now the interesting that's, part that's of that. That's a big hit for that's uh, a big hit for Devin and Blake. Yeah, that's but, right. The, I mean the interesting part of that is that for us it's we're moving to remote work and for us it's not it's not actually that big a deal. I mean we probably would have remained open if the risk reward calculus were different, but it's it's kind of the the risk is there and the reward, it, you know, it's nice. It's good to be in the office and we do better work together, but it's mm -hmm. not really that big a deal. Yeah. And I think that really segues into a really interesting point because the, you know, when we think about government support for impacted industries, we think about big auto company bailouts, bailouts of big banks or even, you know, mid and small size banks. Mm -hmm. It's quite a, you know, co relatively concentrated and highly, sometimes highly regulated industries that have a lot of government ties. The service, you mentioned Devin and Blakely, the terrific sandwich and salad <laughs> soup shop downstairs and restaurants around town and the bars and, and yeah. that sort of thing. It's a much different kettle of fish. Yeah. And how does the government respond to that? When yeah, I think it's, I, I don't think it's insignificant. I mean, look, there, I think there's, there probably is some shifting around. So like that spending doesn't go to zero. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, uh, it goes to. So if you don't go to, if you don't go to, if you're going not you're gonna go to sport, sporting events or movie theaters, yeah, you have to eat. But if you're not going to go to a sporting events or movie theaters, maybe you're, maybe you're going to spend some money on, you know, streaming uh, and, and renting, you know, renting uh, videos on on TV on on demand on TV, and maybe there's some other ways you're going to spend it. So I don't think it, like the spending board doesn't games. go doesn't go to zero. Yeah, board games you could buy. You know, I don't know how many Monopoly games can you buy. Uh, you, well, you know, Purell, you, yeah, lots of lots of lots of Purell and toilet paper and bottled water. I mean, I, I you know, look, I mean, I think the other interesting thing about all this is that I think that we will know a lot more about what this is and isn't in a month. Like, I, I just think that there's going to yeah. be there's a lot of I think there's a lot of speculation and a lot of uncertainty. And I think that's what you're seeing in the markets. I don't I don't think that there's like a a great sense of what this is really going to land and how it's really going to look. So if, so Mark, if you were, if you were back in your, you know, your, in your old job as a, you know, the, the deputy assistant secretary for international affairs at, at, uh, at treasury and, um, you know, in your, or, or, or in your seat over at the IMF when you were executive director, yes, executive director, uh, over at the IMF, um, what, what would your conversations be like with our with our counterparts on this? I mean, does you know are there opportunities for coordinated uh, re, re, uh, responses? I, I know that there's lots of information sharing, but is there is there act, is there activity that could uh, that could happen that might be beneficial uh, between the major economies? So that's a tough question. Um, uh, let me just say that uh, I know that the markets were very unhappy with the G7 statement. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, the G7 statement was not unexpected. Um, I had more of an issue with the market's expectations of the G7. I think they're looking for a white knight. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we're all flying somewhat blind given yeah. the coronavirus. But, but my, my question is, what, what would the white knight have been carrying anyway, right? I mean, like, it seems like from, from you know, I'm the, right. the, the central banks can coordinate, but what would the... What would the, the uh, financial ministries be coordinating? Yeah. So I, I agree with you there. I, I would say, you know, back in 08, uh, the IMF and some of the major countries put out this $5 trillion fiscal plan, right? So mm-hmm. in the G7 statement, they say, well, we're going to do our as appropriate on and they're going to look at fiscal and monetary and financial sector policies um, on monetary policy. Uh, we saw the Fed rate cut, but again, the ECB's in a different place than the Fed. BOJ's in a different place than the Fed. So, so they can be cooperative, but the the notion that these coordinated interest rate cuts that we saw back in two thousand eight and nine, I think that's a bit far fetched in the current circumstances. Yeah, and countries have different fiscal space, but to say we're going to look at what we can do on fiscal and we're going to do it uh, is. May perhaps a statement of the obvious, but it's also it's not it's it particularly it's it's useful. So I think that uh, presumably there are conversations of that nature going on. I think that the central banks uh, and the financial regulatory and stability officials need to be looking at uh, how strong their banks are um, and the like. I would say the banks. If I were the Fed, I'd be telling the banks you to look at their. Uh, lending portfolios and stresses and can they maintain liquidity for small firms, uh, have loan loan modifications if needed. 
and whatnot. So I think there's just a lot of things that you can do, a lot of things you can talk about, but it's, you know, it's just not a home run where everybody uh, locks arms and says kumbaya and, or bonsai and attacks. Uh, so what will so Matt? What would what would you what, what do you think we ought to be doing uh, in a in a sort of domestic program? Is there a way to well, target any of this? I mean, I actually I actually thought that a lot of the um, and I think I, I think Jason Fer- what Jason Furman was talking about along this, and I've heard a number of people say the that what, if there's stimulus that there that it ought to be responsive stimulus, effectively like structured in such a way that you put out the commitment now, but that it is adaptive to whatever the reality ends up being. And I actually think that's a super smart approach in terms of, listen, like that, that, that's an approach that doesn't, I, we don't, we don't know how serious or not serious this is going to be, but that gives markets and economic actors confidence that there is a plan in place and that it's not in it. It has this quality of kind of like okay, you don't you don't have to worry as much about what if and if this happens and all the rest of it because you already have the answer and you can always change that answer if needed, but but that approach seems to me like a a good starting point. Now the the comp you know the fight in Washington is typically all over the composition of the stimulus, which in some respects feels like the secondary question as compared to. Um, the structure. I mean, I don't think that it's necessarily, to me, it's not, it doesn't make a ton of sense to come out hard right now with a, hey, we're going to have a trillion dollar stimulus. Like in a month, that could just make no sense at all. Like I, it, it's not clear to me that this is going to be either a big deal or not a big deal, or it, it just, there's a lot of uncertainty. I think a, um, a contingency stimulus that is like based on some factor or something that that has a it'll automatically ramp up or ramp down or what have you that seems like uh you know a smart policy making approach at the t- in the context so if unemployment ramps up you could increase unemployment insurance you could have a payroll it's, tax yeah. cut is what you're saying yeah and i think the thing i mean look i think the there's a couple of specific pieces that policymakers ought to be thinking about um there are going to be portions of jobs and people and the economy that are going to be able to weather this pretty easily. You know, like we're Tony, the reason we shut down the office because it's not really that big a deal and we can still continue to do our work. If someone is a, you know, if I'm a back in college, I was a waiter. So like if I'm a waiter and nobody's coming into the restaurant, I'm not getting hours. You're screwed. I'm not paid. So so there's different, I think there needs to be some thinking through the responsiveness on that side of it. Um, you know, it's ironic that we're having these big political fights over healthcare. This is a scenario where this is a, this isn't, this isn't really a healthcare quote unquote problem on some level. It's a public health problem, which is a context where, you know, government, the role that government plays in a public health crisis is hugely important. So like, that's not a, that's not as much a debate over how do you most effectively structure your healthcare system and deliver healthcare? That's that's just a different problem. So, um, you know, but those are the types of of policy making questions that people need to be wrestling through at this time. Yeah, I agree. All right, let's. Why don't we? Uh, why don't we uh, take a break there? Uh, I'm going to get back 
uh, with uh, with our our guest today, Mark Sobel, and talk about some Chinese uh, Chinese currency issues. That I think we're going to be talking about for for a long time. But how did we get here? Um, this is uh, Tony Fratto with the HBS Macrocast, and we'll be right back. On the first Friday of every month, HBS analyzes the latest jobs and labor market data in a digestible format. Sign up for our reports at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com or on Twitter at HPS Insight. And we're back on the Macrocast. Uh, our guest today, Mark Sobel. Uh, Mark and I work together at, at Treasury uh, from... I would say from my, when I first walked through the door at, uh, in 2001 until I went to the White House in uh, September of 2006, which I don't know if you remember, uh, was, you know, right after Hank Paulson's uh, trip to China. I think I, got, I sort of got off the airplane and went straight to the uh, straight to the White House. And it was bookended at least, you know, uh, a big part of the Bush administration uh, efforts talking about uh, China. And of course, you were there for uh, Obama administration work on this also. But it was, you know, you know, so I was at a lot of those, the, the G meetings and the uh, dialogue meetings we have, the Chinese bilateral meetings um, in uh, in various places. And part of those, those sort of early uh, efforts to try to get the Chinese to move to towards a more market-oriented uh, um exchange rate and also the politics around it back here. I remember, you know, being with, uh, you know, uh, uh, Secretary Snow and um, and Charlie uh, and Chuck Schumer. And, you know, Schumer uh, was this is in 2003 or whatever, talking about how the renminbi is 40 uh, percent undervalued. And, you know, 10 years later, despite everything that happened, uh, everything that changed in that period, he was still out saying that the <laughs> was 40 percent undervalued and so you know sort of like the it's not that the the the, the uh the chinese exchange rate didn't have uh an impact but uh there have been a lot of uh politics and talk around it and uh and the idea that before the trump administration nothing had been done your paper shows a lot of uh in great detail what exactly had been done and you know what, what was your what was your inspiration in, uh, in in writing it and then walk us through that a little bit well, first of all, I thought we need, uh, we all needed a brief respite from the coronavirus. <laughs> uh, so, so, Tony, you just said it. Uh, you were at Treasury for six years or so. John was there for several years. And I was there throughout. And this issue was one of the dominant, if not the dominant issue that we had to cope with on the Treasury international side. Um, it was a major part of our lives. And the U.S. view has always been that Treasury was ineffective, uh, the U.S. policy was misaligned. You know this better than I do. People would look at the foreign exchange report, which we all had a hand in, and if it didn't say manipulation, they just tossed it in the wastebasket when there was a lot of good work in there and the Chinese were just seen as being malevolent and we were being seen as snookered or stooges and whatnot. And I have a very different view as an insider. I believe that we gave it our all. I believe that we very heavily engaged the Chinese and we put forward all types of arguments uh, to help move them along. We put pressure on them. And I believe that in hindsight, our efforts were 
largely successful. They may have been too slow, but you can see lots of success in it. So I wanted that on the record for history's sake uh, because you, people like us, but you know all the Treasury secretaries, all the team at Treasury, we gave it our all, and I think we uh, delivered quite a bit. And Mark, just a question on the – you mentioned the foreign exchange report. Obviously, it's a it's a – cornerstone of how the treasury engages with uh, global financial uh, global currency markets and uh, and makes itself uh, understood talk a little bit about you said that uh, market participants particularly would tend to throw the throw it away if it didn't say uh, if it didn't designate anybody a manipulator or so forth what what was the what was really behind uh, that that tension and uh, and certainly it wasn't just with market participants; it was also on Capitol Hill. What was the you know what was the real tension between uh, the Treasury's designation uh, or reticence to designate China as a manipulator and uh, versus the pressure from other quarters? Thanks. That's a great question. First of all, uh, I should say that the frustration that existed among American workers and in Capitol Hill is totally understandable. American jobs were being lost; people were being hurt. Uh, by the uh, Chinese currency practices as well as globalization, et cetera. Um, And there were legitimate uh, issues there to be raised, particularly in the 2005-2008 period ahead of the crisis. Um, So everybody said, why the heck didn't you find manipulation? There was a legitimate case to do so. There were huge debates. As I mentioned, the current account was excessive. The currency was highly undervalued. Reserves were rising sharply. The the elements were clearly there. I would say on the other side of the ledger, uh, and this was important to uh, senior Treasury officials and the secretary. So China uh, had begun appreciating its currency in mid-2005 after heavy uh, two years of uh, uh, pushing and pressure from Secretary Snow. Uh, and then when Hank Paulson came into Treasury, it continued to appreciate from mid-2006 uh, until mid-2008 uh, when the crisis began. So appreciation is what we would have wanted to have happened. So we were getting results. You can say not enough and, and whatnot, but we were getting results. The foreign exchange report legislation basically said, well, if you find manipulation, you have to start expedited negotiations to remedy the problem with the country. So think about it. All of us are going to China all the time. Secretary Paulson's on the phone all the time. He has created the Strategic and Economic Dialogue, which is this whole government-to-government discussion twice a year. So you could argue we're negotiating already, which is what the legislation called for. Uh, Another consideration is would overt naming and shaming of the Chinese be helpful? So you, you and I have enough experience with the Chinese to know you put a gun to their head, they're, gonna, they're not going to cooperate. Right. Um, but if, if you can stage manage your pressure appropriately behind the scenes with some public pressure, uh, they will be responsive. And finally, um, there, was, there, there were big debates in Washington and the Treasury as well as elsewhere in Washington. If we had designated China, would that have made Capitol Hill happy? And Capitol Hill would have said, fine, Treasury, we'll leave you alone. We'll give you all the space. Or would Capitol have said, well, here are 100 pieces of legislation. We want to help you. 
Um, and I think that the sense inside the Treasury was that the latter was more likely than the former. So we were getting results. Uh, so that was that was why. Just a quick question on the the last August, the Trump administration, the Treasury did label China a currency manipulator. Could you tell us a little bit about your perspective on that particular episode? This, that they've since withdrawn it uh, as part of the phase one mm -hmm. trade deal. Uh, but uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that particular episode. So, you know, in 2018, when the Fed was tightening, uh, was lifting, uh, the dollar rose against all emerging market currencies, uh, less by, against the RMB than others, but it, it was going up. And then the president, uh, started ratcheting up uh, trade protectionist rhetoric and Chinese tariffs and whatnot. So the market um, thought, well, if there are going to be tariffs on Chinese goods, that's going to decrease the competitiveness of uh, Chinese exports, and therefore they took the RMB down. It finally, in um, August of 2019, went below 7.0, which you and I know the difference between 6.999 and 7.001 is right. irrelevant, but seven was seen as psychological. And so I think what happened apparently is when the president saw the RMB go below seven, he was infuriated and he called the treasury up and said, just designate them a manipulator. <laughs> so even though the report is notionally out in April and, and October, uh, treasury in one put out a one-pager saying they're designated. And I thought it was uh, uh, unwarranted and unwise. Um, again, the indicia that Treasury uses to look at whether uh, manipulation is occurring is you look at the current account, so plus or minus 1% of GDP, well below even Treasury's threshold. Um, they're not intervening. Reserves aren't going up. They haven't been going up for years. Many people say the currency's fairly valued. Trump gets upset about the bilateral bounce. Uh, economists would say bilateral bounces aren't particularly relevant. Uh, so I thought it was extremely uh, inappropriate and ill-considered. And again, the RMB was falling because of, of Trump's trade rhetoric. But um, that's what the Treasury had to do. It seems, yeah, it seems to be like the, um, the the designation, which was hanging out there for you know for so long, uh, it, it had you know it had it had more power as a threat uh, than it did in its actual use, right? In a, in a, in a sense, in, in a sense, they've sort of defanged uh, the currency report now uh, because you know what followed is what we all kind of knew is you know, very little that you can do by designating them. Um, so the teeth of it were never really there. The Chinese clearly did not want to be designated, and uh, and that, and uh, you know a lot of our conversations with them were always you know their great concern uh, that we may designate them, and then it happened, and nothing happened. So right? I agree. I agree with you. Of course, it, the circumstances were so politicized; uh, it didn't look credible. Um, yeah, I would that's say true. I would say of, of one thing. I agree with you that the designation per se may not have much teeth, and nor does the legislation surrounding the mm -hmm. Treasury report. But, you know, there are other things you can do, like slap tariffs on them or something like that, that could be, right. that could have teeth. And then the other That's thing true. is China's big. 
So if you're thinking about a Southeast Asian country that may be uh, engaging in somewhat harmful practices, their treasury's big, they're not so big. I think there, there's a case for uh, more leverage. Mm-hmm. On the desi- with the designation. Or, yeah. or using yeah. the designation as a way to talk to them and say, you know, yeah. let your currency rise or be more transparent and whatnot. Yeah. No, I think that's true. I, I agree with you on that. I just, uh, uh, so, but, but the, the uh, you know, the, the, are, do you know our, uh, our discussions going on at the IMF uh, in, you know, the, 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 the United States begin discussions at the IMF um, uh, with the Chinese uh, on, uh, on their currency practices? I mean, that was what the way back when or now? No, now, so, now, right? That was what, that's what was supposed to follow. Designation is, you know, that we go to the IMF and uh, sit and have uh, some kind of a, a non, undef- ill-defined, undefined kinds of, uh, uh, you know, almost an arbitration kind of uh, set of with with the IMF. Now, of course, the IMF has done a lot of analysis. You noted. Uh, on uh, on the Chinese yeah. on the Chinese currency, and so they have their uh, it has its own views yeah. uh, on this. But you know, you know, the, the steps that ought to have or, or that would that would follow are like I said, they're just they're they're pretty they're pretty undefined. So, if I, my recollection of the 2015 uh, so-called Bennett Amendment are clear, one of the uh, measures that should follow would be that. Uh, uh, there would be consultations between the executive director's office and the IMF. Uh, I'm sure those thing, those happened. I have little doubt that they did, and I have little doubt that the IMF uh, reiterated its position, which is that the RMB is fairly valued and that uh, they have a small yeah. current account surplus, and there really isn't a, an issue here. And now, you know, I think when you were Treasury, when we were having discussions with the IMF, at that point uh, – those were much more serious um, and um, nettlesome discussions. Yeah, I agree. I agree. If you uh, so the, the Chinese, um, the Chinese today, uh, you know, if you think about the, you know, the goals that we were um, through a, a few administrations trying to achieve. Um, where would you put us on that continuum of the, you know, of getting them to think more about? Uh, markets. I mean, our, our, you know, our view was that, you know, having having a substantially undervalued, uh, you know, currency for any point in time is, you know, it's it's harmful domestically. There was always there's a view even back here, um, you know, that uh, that there's that there's an advantage to having an undervalued currency, but it's two sided, right? There are costs to it, which is something that we were, you know, trying to impress. Also, has that message gotten, uh, you know, through? I mean, do you think there are they believers in that at least uh, on uh, on things like currency? So, uh, what I want to say, and maybe wrap up, is that uh, I believe that the strategy of engagement that the Bush and Obama administrations pursued uh, was successful. Uh, I believe that we brought the best arguments we could to persuade them. I think that, uh, as you said at the outset, China's sovereign. It's got ugly domestic politics. Um, and so we had to make a – we were but another voice in China, but we had to make arguments that made it appeal to the self-interest of the economic community and the leadership to yeah. appreciate the currency. Uh, and I think that uh, we did that. I think that uh, the arguments got increasingly sophisticated under all of the various sec- secretaries. 
And I think that on the whole, we were able to resist protectionist pressures at home that the Bush and Obama administrations did not think were, were prudent. Um, so, uh, so I think um, now, if you go to the Chinese central bank, uh, they're not really interested in playing currency games. They've got enough problems yeah. at home. Um, so I, I think uh, the Chinese thinking has evolved uh, considerably on this front in a direction that we uh, want and uh, that our pressure, our argumentation was an important factor in China moving. Mark, thanks for coming on to join us to talk about it. It's great to see you. Uh, if, if you want to read uh, the full uh, the full paper by Mark, you can find it on the OnFifth website. You can find you can follow Mark on Twitter at uh, Sobel S O B E L underscore Mark M A R K, uh, where you can also link to his uh, to his paper. Uh, thank Matt for joining us today on his usual jobs day. Uh, and uh, and John Fagan from Markets Policy Partners. We'll get Brendan in here next week. I think we'll, we'll, Brendan will be back. Uh, but everyone have a great uh, have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share. Find more from Hamilton Place Strategies at hamiltonplacestrategies.com and follow Tony Fratto on Twitter at Tony Fratto. Learn more about John Fagan, Brendan Walsh, and the work they do at Markets Policy Partners by visiting marketspolicy.com.